Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're discussing how changing climate and oceans have impacted societies in the past and today. The Earth's temperatures have been warming for 15,000 years, and that has had a profound impact on human civilization. What's new in the industrial era is the introduction of human-caused and rapid change driven by burning fossil fuels. Carbon pollution spewing from tailpipes and smokestacks is impacting oceans in an increasingly visible way. Sea level rise will put Pacific Island nations underwater this century. Hurricane Sandy poured the Atlantic Ocean into the New York City subway. Less visible to most people is the increasing acidification of oceans that threatens the food web and economies based on it. Over the next hour, we'll look at the causes and consequences of warming and rising seas. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two people who look at oceans and climate change from different perspectives. Meg Caldwell is a lawyer and director of the Environmental and Natural Resources Program at Stanford Law School. She's also executive director of the Center for Ocean Solutions at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. She's a former chair of the California Coastal Commission. Brian Fagan is an archaeologist and professor retired from UC Santa Barbara and author of several books on climate change, including *The Little Ice Age* and *The Long Summer*. His most recent book is *The Attacking Ocean: The Past, Present, and Future of Rising Sea Levels*. Please welcome them to Climate One. Yeah. Uh, Brian Fagan, let's take a brief tour through history and talk a little bit about. In, uh, you write during the medieval period there were tremendous storms and, and sea surges that killed tens of thousands of people. Tell us about some of those. Basically, if you take as your stage the North Sea, what people don't realize is that 12,000 years ago the North Sea was dry land. It was marshy and swampy, dry land, but it was dry land. The North Sea, as we know it, did not exist, and in there were living probably maybe ten thousand hunters and gatherers, who simply retreated as the sea rose, and it rose so fast that in places probably the shoreline was unrecognizable for what it had been when you were young. By the time you were at the end of your life, which would have been in your twenties, probably. 
And by 5500 BC, it was gone. You had the ocean we know today. And ever since then, people living in the low countries have been defending themselves against the rising ocean. And what really triggered the current sea level defenses of the Netherlands was a series of gigantic North Sea gales which started in the Atlantic and barreled ashore on the low-lying, unprotected shores of the lowlands, of the low countries, without warning, because there was no forecasting. And these brought very strong winds and high waves. And if one of these coincided with high tide, you got huge storm surges, which would sweep several meters of water over hundreds of thousands of acres. And in 1362, there was one of these storms, which is called the Grootmandrenke, which is the great killing of people. And this killed what contemporary records called an infinity of people. And it literally rolled herds of cattle and sheep with the waves far inland and flooded an enormous area. And there were a whole series of these which really triggered the history of sea defenses. And it's worth mentioning, before I shut up, that there were two defining events like this. Now, this will come up later in the 20th century. One was a sea surge in 1916, which resulted in the damming of the Zayda Zee, which became the Islamia, and the latest one was in 1953, when dikes burst in southern Holland and killed 1,200 people, as well as about the same number of people in Britain. So there's a long history of this. And one of the interesting stories you write about is that there was a worm brought in on ships, I believe it was the East India Company, that decimated some of the the defenses. And this is an interesting example of how even well-designed defenses can be thwarted by something unexpected from outside the system. Oh, yes, because basically there was no rock in the Netherlands, much of which is basically a series of estuaries. And they used timber, but... These ships brought in the Torado worm, which loves timber, and they literally at the sea defenses. So they had to start bringing in stone. They started using seaweed, which is surprisingly effective when combined with sand. And they devised ways of dif- diverting water from the seawalls. But today, of course, these are huge. And it's worth mentioning that if you live in a village near the ocean in the Netherlands, you won't have an ocean view. All you will see will be a seawall covered with grass being grazed by sheep who look very well fed. So lessons from the Dutch and from history, is that the future for California? Uh, uh, what, what can we learn from history and the, and the Dutch experiment with, with sort of defending against this onslaught of the seas? And then we'll get to Meg Caldwell here to talk about California today. So Brian Fagan. What lessons have they learned? What lessons can be learned from this history about applied to today? The options in the face of rising sea levels that one has are well known. One of them is to wall off the ocean, which is what the Dutch have done with great brilliance. They are also looking far, far ahead, and they are planning for 1,000 and even 10,000-year storm events. They're being very, very, very forward-looking, extremely conservative, and spending enormous sums of money on this. And they've got one barrage where they've put up an inscription which says, 
Here, the ocean is controlled by the moon, the sun, and us. Which is a very arrogant, self-assured statement. And in the long run, the question I would ask is, do sea walls, with all the consequences of building them, actually master the ocean? You notice I'm deliberately not answering the question. I don't know. Meg Caldwell, former chair of the California Coastal Commission. Um, what kind of, how, what do you think about the future of California in terms of this, this history and, and what are our vulnerabilities here in California thinking about rising sea levels and, and what, what's going on? I think the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that we have some fairly recent examples of what is likely to occur more frequently in the future. So if we just look back to the 1982-1983 El Nino and then the 1997-98 El Nino, we saw tremendous damage along our coastal areas. The 90, uh, the 82-83 El Nino, I think, caused something on the order of $215 million worth of damage, and that's in 2010 dollars. So... Where we have the greatest risk and vulnerability is where we have a combination of these very large storms that um, that are generated um, and increasingly intense as climate change progresses uh, in combination with high tides uh, and um, creating very large storm surges. And this is where the bulk of the damage is really occurring. So um, we... You know, our memories are short, but it's only within the last, you know, few decades that we've had um, very intimate experience with what we will uh, increasingly experience in the future. So the question is, I know Brian mentioned the first thing that might be done as a form of adaptation, which is to fortify the coast. Um, well, we, we have also lessons from having done so. We know that seawalls um, are of a limited lifetime. They require maintenance over time. Um, they don't always work. Uh, they can have detrimental impact on property values. They certainly limit coastal access, which is a constitutional right in the state of California, um, both getting to the coast and walking along the coast for anyone who's traversed the area on Ocean Beach that has a whole combination of rock revetments and seawalls. And if you've done so near high tide, you realize that it's really dangerous and, in fact, impossible to traverse uh, the beach in certain stretches. So we've got some public safety concerns as well. Um, Not only that, but the construction of seawalls and rock revetments uh, involves a tremendous commitment of capital and um, and greenhouse gas emissions, I might add. Uh, we know that our cement plants are among our largest emitters of greenhouse gas uh, in the state. And so what we're basically doing is doubling down on, on a, a very bad commitment um, towards uh, using fossil fuels into the future. So a second option might be to adjust how we build and develop along the shoreline. Um, to not rebuild in areas that have been devastated by or are in basically high-risk areas that have been 
formerly devastated by uh, high tides, big storms, just don't rebuild in those high hazard areas. Um, we can also adjust how we build. We can change our building codes. We can um, adjust our development standards and increase our setbacks so that we are building in less and less risky ways. Uh, and a third uh, thing that we can do uh, in the form of adaptation, which might be this 10,000-year approach, um, taking the long view, is to pull off the coast um, where it's simply too risky. And we know that the long-term uh, option is to move off these high-risk areas. So I, I, I think one um, framework that really helped me think about uh, sort of sensible adaptation is a framework that was suggested by an editorial in Global Climate Change a couple of years ago. And it, it really sets out a series of questions um, that give you pause and make you think about whether or not adaptation is constructive adaptation or whether it's maladaptation. So maladaptation might involve um, basically choosing options that result in greater greenhouse gas emissions um, than others, perhaps seawalls versus different development standards, for example. Maladaptation would be to choose options that actually put the most vulnerable of society at greater risk. Um, so thinking about... Um, areas along the coast where we have um, more socially vulnerable, less resilient communities, the low-income communities, um, communities with lower education, communities um, who simply don't have the social capital to um, bounce back. Um, and then another question is, uh, will, will this course of action actually commit us to a long-term commitment of resources and inst- institutional momentum um, so that we foreclose our options in the in the future and over the medium term. Um, I think of, uh, for example, building desalination plants along along the coast um, or um, um, great um, uh, seawalls along the coast. And uh, and finally, will the option actually cause more social, economic, and ecological damage than alternatives? So these are the kinds of questions that we need to be asking as we think about adaptation. A lot there, and I want to drill into a lot of those, but first give Brian Fagan's response to any of that. There was quite a bit there from your historical lens, uh, the questions of, of retreating cultures, retreating from the coastline. Uh, just any response to that? I would agree with everything Meg said. I mean, she's absolutely correct. There are no easy solutions to adaptation. The one that truly... Fr- I'm going to go on a slight tangent here because this is relevant. The one that truly frightens me is Bangladesh. And this raises another issue, which she didn't raise, which to me seems very interesting and important. And that is in Bangladesh, which is on an average 38 feet above sea level, they've got densely populated cities. They have subsistence farmers with rice and shrimp farms on the coast. They've stripped off all the natural, or most of the natural, mangrove swamps that protects Bangladesh, which is at the top of the Bay of Bengal. So literally, cyclones come up, and they say, good afternoon, how are you? Let's go ashore, and bang, they go ashore. And there was a wonderful account of one in 1864, before they started doing mitigation, where a ship was drifting in the storm and floated over the top of trees and landed with its bowsprit over a post office. Or the official who was touring, a government official, took shelter in a hut, the hut blew away, 
and there's this lovely account he wrote of how the water rose suddenly and it rose to his waist at precisely 1.20pm at which point his watch stopped it's lovely but I mean probably 100,000 people died in that sea surge and today with the population rise where they're forecasting 21 million people in the city of Dhaka in 2021 that's not far away and with the coastal population also growing and groundwater being contaminated by an increasing amount of seawater as the sea level rises and remember when sea level rises the spread very often horizontally is much bigger than the rise much more extensive they are facing the real issue of thousands of environmental refugees who will have nowhere to go because their land is gone and the same in Egypt and these people aren't people who are experts in computers or people with money or people who have connections in the cities these are subsistence farmers who are anchored in that land where are they going to go? they're not going to go to India India doesn't like Bangladesh and has no space Myanmar, ditto there were no, to my knowledge and she may know better than I international policies for environmental refugees which are confronting this problem which is going to be here, I think within our great-grandchildren's lifetimes if not before but I'm open to correction and she probably knows more than I do there's a film called Climate Refugees, and in that film, a documentary film that came out a couple of years ago, they cite a UN statistic. There's already 50 million climate refugees in the world, and they attach climate to lots of droughts in Africa, et cetera, uh, even Darfur and other places. Uh, and let's touch briefly on the Pacific Islands, and we'll come back to California. Pacific Island nations, they're already shopping for land in nearby countries to move their populations. Brian Fagan? Oh, yeah, they will be. And there was actually a study done by the British government on environmental refugees, which is well worth reading. It's on the web. And it frightened the hell out of me. Hey, Caldwell? Yeah, we know that the president of Kiribati is actually exploring the purchase of significant land in Fiji, for example, for his country, because they will be displaced um, very soon. Some have already. And, you know, we, we've already seen migration of, of people from Micronesia into places like New Zealand. And, it, you know, there's an incredible social and cultural toll here that um, largely doesn't get accounted for in mm-hmm. our sort of, you know, kind of structural discussions and um, the, the loss of whole cultures and the degree to which um, cultures can be or should be assimilated um, in, in new um, societies, and uh, what the toll is on the, you know, the, the New Zealanders themselves. And I, I think this um, is something that we really need the social scientists um, to be helping us to understand and how best to facilitate migration where it's absolutely necessary. And as you mentioned, in many of the the Pacific atolls, it will be. The people who contributed least to it are suffering first and suffering most. Um, Sure, Brian Fagan. If I may add something to this. I spent an early part of my misspent youth living among subsistence farmers in the Zambezi Valley, some of whom had been forcibly moved. And the most striking thing about those people was their relationship with the land they cultivated. It was the land of their ancestors. And when they had a village meeting, every time the village spirit medium got up and invoked the ancestors, 
clapping his hands because the ancestors are the guardians of the land. You meet people, say, subsistence villagers on barrier islands on the Arctic Sea, and you want to move them to, say, any city up there. They don't want to go because that's their land, that's their heritage. They'd rather move five miles at vast expense and build a new village. And with good reason, because they're terrified of urban life and of alcohol, because many of these settlements are dry. It's a very, very complex, sensitive subject, extremely. May Caldwell, that brings to mind some cases in Alaska, Kivalina and other places where there are some native cultures and villages that are being, uh, uh, basically their uh, land is being eroded by sea level rise. They say they contributed very little to it. And there's been some very early court cases. I don't know if you're able to comment at all on those cases uh, in the Ninth Circuit here and others. There are sort of some early cases testing uh, sort of the legal avenue for Damages, lost property, and, and, and villages that may be forced to move and, and uh, lose that connection to the land that Brian Fagan just mentioned. I can't comment on those cases, but I can tell you that there's a, a very concerted and serious effort undergoing, uh, underway right now within the U.N., and colleagues of mine from Stanford are traveling to New York right now to present the case on behalf of the small island states uh, AOSIS and to uh, explain, you know, what climate change is visiting on these cultures and on these societies. And it's not just sea level rise. It's ocean acidification and ocean warming and uh, really changing the whole um, relationship between these societies and um, their coastal and ocean ecosystems, which is primarily what they depend on for livelihoods and for protein. Let's talk about ocean acidification. I believe uh, Jane Lubchenco, uh, former administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, called ocean acidification the evil twin of climate change. Uh, A lot of people don't know about it, don't see it. Uh, So what is ocean acidification and and why should we care? Well, so, Brian, feel free to... Um, chime in at any point here, but the ocean, the global ocean, has actually done us this incredible favor by buffering us from a lot of the effects of um, climate change and our, our fossil fuel addiction, if you will. And um, part of that is that it has um, simultaneously absorbed a lot of the atmospheric heat. Um, so the ocean is getting warmer. Sea surface temperatures are warming. And it has also absorbed a great deal of the um, atmospheric CO2 that um, that we are responsible for. So um, what the scientific community reports to us is that they know from Mauna Loa and other research stations that have, where they have really long-term studies that um, and tracking the pH and chemistry of the ocean over the long term as well, that since the Industrial Revolution, the oceans have become about 30% more acidic. Um, so the combination of warming ocean, warming sea surface temperatures, more acidic ocean, uh, and um, simultaneously, um, frequently, uh, comes with its own evil twin of um, a lowering of oxygen in, um, in the sort of three-dimensional ocean, uh, we have a squeezing out effect for um, certain species, and we we expect that there are there are effects going on within the marine food food web that we haven't even um, begun to understand. Uh, on ocean acidification and 
particular, because I know you really wanted to talk about that. I mean, we, we already know from the species that we've studied so far that, um, that about half the species, um, the, an increasingly acidic ocean, um, uh, adversely affects them. So oysters and mussels, um, any species that relies on um, calcium for to create its skeleton, either um, external skeleton or inter- interior skeleton, um, is um, can be affected by ocean acidification. We know that some of the base of the food chain in the ocean and here in the Pacific, these fabulous um, oceanic snails called pteropods um, that form their exterior shell um, using calcium carbonate. Um, that we've seen both in the lab and in the field uh, that the current conditions are adversely affecting their shell formation. And these are a particular concern to us because these pteropods are actually the uh, one of the primary um, prey of our juvenile salmon. And it's salmon, of course, is a major industry uh, along the West Coast. Um, we have very strong cultural connections with with salmon, of course, and um, to to think of how that might be this relationship between predator and prey may be um, altered by ocean acidification is really daunting. Um, oysters, we we've already seen dramatic effects on uh, oysters on the west coast. We have Taylor shellfish and Whiskey Creek um, hatcheries up in Oregon and Washington. And since about 2009, they've experienced um, incredible um, impacts on their ability to convert embryos into juvenile oysters and into spat that then they sell to the California oyster industry. We don't grow any of our own spat here. Um, So we are entirely dependent on Oregon and Washington for our oyster industry. Ours, of course, isn't as large as Oregon's and Washington's, but it's still substantial. So think of this, not being able to go down to the ferry building and get your Hog Island oysters anymore. Um, so the the industry, of course, is trying to adapt to this. They're experiencing what we thought would be like 2050 conditions for ocean acidification now. They're doing things like buffering the water um, as they bring it in to um, the tanks where they're trying to grow these babies. Um, they are going over to Hawaii and uh, trying to uh, establish hatcheries over there that have um, slightly better conditions. Which, That's a low-carbon solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this is obviously not sustainable, especially when you think about the fact that at some point you have to bring those babies out into the field. Um, you can't grow all the oysters in tanks. Um, so I don't know if any of you um, had the opportunity to listen to Dick Feely and uh, one of the managers from Taylor Fish uh, Seafood last Friday on Science Friday, but it was a great um, 20-minute program that um, went even deeper on this issue of how ocean acidification is affecting oysters. What can California or anyone do about ocean acidification? Well, the first thing we can do is um, is stay the course with our, our current policies of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. So AB 32 is absolutely critical. We need to be thinking beyond AB 32 now. And, of course, that was a law that um, insisted that we go, we go back to 1990 levels for greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. Well, 2020 is fast approaching. So um, we need to redouble our efforts to reduce our own 
carbon footprint as a state. We're a major economy, and um, we are a contributor to this global problem. Uh, the second thing that we can do um, while really being a leader in that field and trying to bring others along is to um, to kind of pull off some of the other stressors on our coastal and ocean ecosystems and give them a chance during this period where we are hopefully converting away from a fossil fuel-based uh, economy and society and into renewables. And, um, and that would involve things like uh, reducing our um, urban runoff, our agricultural runoff, um, um, checking our um, air emissions, all of these um, can affect and do affect our coastal and ocean ecosystems in different ways and in different locations. Um, but this is a strategy that um, many scientists sort of call buying time and increasing the resiliency of these coastal and ocean ecosystems so that we give them a chance um, in the face of climate change. Brian Fagan, does your reading of history give you uh, hope, optimism that we will adapt in this way? We've adapted many times before. Will we get it right this time? Which is interesting because I can jump off what she just said here. To me, the most startling thing, and in archaeology, which is my field, we've had this for years, I am startled how little informed the general public is. And this is a serious deficiency in the way we educate people and create an informed citizenry. It's all very well doing all the research, but one of the primary jobs we have is to talk about ocean certification in intelligible terms for lay people and say, look, you want oysters, this has got to happen. Get out of your SUV or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and really think about this, because one of the lessons of history is that I can be optimistic. We are homo sapiens. We're the wise people, obviously. We're not often wise, but we're wise. We innovate. We plan. We think ahead. Or we think we do. We're infinitely ingenious. And time and time again in history, we found solutions. We've solved problems. Today, the problems we face, growing population, pollution, and so on, are unprecedented. But I happen to believe that we're ingenious enough to solve the problem. Having said that, part of this is being clever enough to realize the importance of defining moments. And two that I would mention here from the ocean point of view, Hurricane Katrina, Superstorm Sandy, and the El Ninos that hit us a decade ago. Because believe me, ladies and gentlemen, they're coming back. They love this coast. They want to attack it. And the sooner we start educating people about the realities of this, the better off we are. So I really believe that the future lies, a lot of it, in an informed citizenry. And that's why people are here today. That's why we do this Climate One radio show. If you're just joining us, our guest today at, at Climate One are Brian Fagan, retired uh, professor from UC Santa Barbara and author of The Attacking Ocean, The Past, Present, and Future of Rising Sea Levels. Other guest is Meg Caldwell, a senior lecturer in law at Stanford University and executive director of the Center for Ocean Solutions at the Woods Institute for the Environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available on iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at our handle at Climate One. So 
the citizenry is not informed. Uh, how about the state of California? Are, are the people responsible for policy planning, uh, understanding this this is going on, and what what's the government doing to sort of prepare? And I want to talk a little bit about time frames and time cycles because we tend to be very uh, short term focused as business people, as, as as a polity, and yet these are very long term uh, challenges. Meg Caldwell. First, let me go back to the presumption um, or the precursor to that question, which was citizen re is not informed. And I want to share with you the results of a recent survey that we conducted uh-huh. at uh, the Woods Institute for the Environment and Center for Ocean Solutions uh, with John Krosnick, who's a professor of psychology and political science. At and a Stanford. pollster, does a lot of good polling work on this. Yep. Right. And we essentially... Uh, developed a baseline study, if you will, um, for uh, sort of knowledge. Well, he's done a lot of studies on uh, the degree to which uh, the public recognizes that climate change is happening. And um, and what those previous surveys tell us is that the, the public actually knows. Um, they are well aware that climate change is occurring, that it's having negative effects on um, on 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 communities and on the environment. Uh, the study that we connect, uh, we wrote and developed uh, actually builds on that and asks questions like, um, do you understand whether, you know, the degree to which sea level rise is part and parcel of climate change and will sea level rise be good, bad, or indifferent um, for coastal communities? Um, will we experience more damaging storms? And overwhelmingly, the public responded in California and in the nation as a whole, because this was a national survey where we did a, an oversample in, in California, said yes, over 80% said climate change is happening, um, and over 80% said yes, it involves sea level rise and it will produce more damaging storms, and over 80% said that we really think the government needs to take a leadership role here. Um, we should be preparing for this um, in advance of um, these more damaging storms and sea level rise. And we are looking to local government, state government, and the federal government to take action. So um, I think we have kind of a disconnect between um, sort of the, the urban legend that the, the public is not informed and that the public's not concerned and that they don't expect action um, and what the elected officials are telling us, which is, well, we're not really seeing our constituencies ra- rallying behind this. Um, so part of our job uh, as scholars in this area is to share this information and let them know that, in fact, the public is pretty well informed about this, and they do have an opinion about it. And um, elected officials do have a very important role, and, and government agencies have a very important role here. Um, so I forgot the other part of your question, just, but just I kind of went on a roll uh, about there. Yeah. Yes, fair enough. Uh, and tomorrow we will have a former governor of New Jersey, Christy Whitman, will be here with us, and former governor of Colorado, Bill Bill Ritter, will be here. And Governor Whitman told me on the phone this morning that there's always this dis- disconnect that that elected officials follow the people; they don't lead them usually. Uh, and and anyway, it's more about that tomorrow if you'd like to join us at noon. Uh, so the question is, what are what is government doing? Uh, to sort of plan and, and the time frames for this, because people think about sea level rise, they think about 
centuries, it's a slow threat, we'll have time to respond. And history and Hurricane Sandy would say, well, sea level rise can kind of pack a pretty mighty punch pretty Mm -hmm. fast, and it's here now. It's not something Mm -hmm. for great-grandchildren. So let's talk about the time frame and planning. Okay, so yes. Um, The state of California has actually been a leader um, to some degree, and so I really want to give it credit uh, where credit is due. We've seen here in the San Francisco Bay Area the BCDC, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, um, tackling sea level rise, developing its own sea, sea level rise policy, and really being uh, very transparent about um, how it's going to make decisions in the face of sea level rise and coastal development around the Bay. Uh, we've seen the California Energy Commission um, putting a lot of money and res- you know, other resources into research to better understand what the impacts are that we can expect in California. Uh, Guido Franco has been a, a leader in his field there, and I really have to hand it to the staff at the Energy Commission. Um, so we've developed a lot of really good information, um, and we've been delivering that information to the elected officials and, um, and agency leaders. And we are starting to see commitment of resources and um, a sense of some urgency that we do have to engage in um, in planning now to deal with sea level rise. So the California Coastal Commission is developing a sea level rise policy as we speak. The Ocean Protection Council has been working in combination with the Coastal Conservancy to extend grants to local jurisdictions so that they can um, adjust their general plans and their local coastal programs to account for sea level rise. Uh, we have a bill in the legislature um, that would um, be, make it very clear that under the California Environmental Quality Act, we should be looking at the physical changes that we can expect um, along um, the coast in the context of any kind of environmental impact report for a project that is located along the coast. Um, those kinds of changes are happening um, and we see agencies like Caltrans that have developed a sea level rise policy. Now, that one says basically for long-term projects, projects longer, I think, than uh, five years out, um, they absolutely have to take sea level rise into account. So the the engine of change is, is revving up and starting to um, get in motion. Uh, I think what uh, what we haven't done is um, – is sort of taken a collective time out and said, in the meantime, until all of these plans are in place, um, how can we make sure that we we don't um, further double down on bad decisions, um, commit re- resources sort of irretrievably in the wrong um, direction um, in the in the name of adaptation, and um, and begin to rethink some of our bigger institutions that really do affect um, behavior like our flood insurance program and disaster relief. Um, So these are the things that we have yet to tackle. Brian Fagan, uh, you live in Santa Barbara. Uh, Is there a recognition of this in Santa Barbara? Are people moving back from the coast? I believe there was one case where some people wanted to do a a blue line of where sea level rise would be in the future, and there was a lot of pushback from that. Oh, the blue line. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you would bring up the blue line. This was an attempt some years ago by some, I think, activists to paint a line on the streets of Santa Barbara showing where sea level would go. This was shouted down 
A, by development interests, and B, by people who thought this was just bloody stupid. And I hate to say it, but they had a point. But it did give us some exposure. Uh, and Santa Barbara, I, I guess, I don't really know. I've been away a lot, and really I'm not very much in touch. But uh, they are obviously concerned. We have, for example, a very vulnerable harbor, uh, which is going to need work and so on. But an awful lot of what happens in Meg's world is, I think, people are unaware of it. And I would make one final provocative point. If anyone in this room has any illusions about the cost of all this, and any illusion that in the future we can have government on the cheap, which seems to be one of the litanies now, forget it. doesn't matter what your ideology is. Reality suggests we've got to spend public money and a lot of it, as well as private. Let's explore that, because we're going to have to spend a lot of money just to maintain what we already have today. Uh, roads are going to need to be moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, water treatment plants are need, need to be raised or adapted. And uh, we don't like to pay for these things. And we're not going to have some shiny new object at the end of the day. We're going to kind of have this, this status quo, but pr- protected. Uh, there's an effort, I believe, in a couple of years to have a parcel tax in the nine Bay Area counties to do some re- uh, wetlands restorations and sort of use these nature sponges to protect the bay uh, from from sea. But, uh, Meg Caldwell, uh where are we going to get all the money to pay for this? We don't well, want. We certainly don't want increased taxes. Well, don't speak so soon. Uh, the same survey that we conducted, um, looking at attitudes about uh, climate change, um, also looked at what kind of adaptive measures are most appealing to the California public, and who should pay for them. So here's the rundown. Uh, roughly half of the California public believes that um, that uh, the, the state government um, should uh, pay for general preparation. So in terms of all the planning that I discussed a little earlier, that sh- that's a that's a government um, function that really all of us should pay for. But when we look at specific adaptation measures, things like building seawalls, um, reconstructing dunes, beach nourishment, um, induced retreat, pulling people off the coastline. Um, there, the public says overwhelmingly, and this is, this is amazing, these percentages were amazing, that uh, it is the coastal property owners and businesses um, who should be paying for that. So that speaks directly to this issue of a parcel tax versus income tax, right? Because right now we all pay when disaster but, strikes. But that's people we who, all pay. who don't own coastal property saying people who own coastal property should pay, right? I mean, there's a little bit we of... We wondered about that. So we asked about that. So we, we went back, we looked at the data, and we segregated coastal property owners and inlanders and renters. And do you know that... over? Again, overwhelmingly, coastal property owners believe that they should be the ones who should pay for these specific adaptation measures. So, Did you uh, survey we, in Tiburon? Because they're fighting that in Tiburon. They don't want to the pay. The entire uh, California their, public. We, okay. Everyone had an equal opportunity to participate in this survey. In, in Tiburon, they've notably pushed back on uh, things to sort of pay for that waterfront lifestyle they have. So, okay, so people might be willing to pay. Say people are willing to pay. So you're saying that taxes may go up? Uh, that, and, and Brian Fagan's, you know, we, we're not going to get this on the cheap. This is going to cost a heck of a lot. 
So I think there's a difference between uh, what's happening right now is we all pay, and we all pay through basically the income tax system. And um, we paid to bail out New York and New Jersey. We paid to bail them out. That's right. So it's quite a, it's a hidden cost, and we are not explicit about that. And so the question is the degree to which we're willing to be explicit about this, and um, basically ask those who would visit upon themselves greater risk by building in high hazard areas to actually bear the costs of that risk. If you're just joining us, we're talking about sea level rise in California and beyond with Meg Caldwell, a law professor at Stanford University, and Brian Fagan, a retired archaeologist from UC Santa Barbara and an author. We're going to invite your participation and uh, audience participation and invite you to come up and ask a one, uh, one-part question or comment. Uh, and if you're on this part of the, of the room, we invite you to please go through that door. And uh, the line starts with our producer, Jane Ann, right there. And then we'll get you in, included in this. And... Um, this is often one of the most uh, informative, engaging parts of the conversation. And who's going to be first? Come on, don't be shy. Uh, someone will be first once it gets going. And then um, we will include you, you in this. Uh... Let's uh, let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Gary, Malaysian. Your last comment about people that live inland uh, might be, not want to pay, but however, when people that live inland want to go on vacation, they go to the coast. So the amount of money that is spent on the coast is for the benefit of the entire populace, as my mind sees it. It's not just because you live in Fresno. You vacation in San, in, uh, San Francisco and Santa Barbara, et cetera, et cetera. So I think everybody should pay. And the second thing is climate how are we going to get uh, – I come to a lot of these gatherings. I never see a legislator here, city, state, national. They're always on the platform. They, how do we get that information to these dolts that are dragging their feet about climate change? May Caldwell, local elected officials, there's a – yeah. So let me share with you that uh, the first hearing for a new select committee in the California legislature on sea level rise in the California economy um, just occurred. So we do, uh, I think perhaps the sleeping giant has awoken and, and, um, and the legislature is aware that it needs to uh, educate itself on, on what climate change will bring to coastal communities and um, how those impacts will affect the California economy and what the legislature needs to be doing to improve our prospects moving forward and reduce our vulnerabilities and increase our resilience over the long haul. So the first of four hearings just occurred last month in Sacramento, and the remaining three hearings are going to occur throughout the state. So you can Google it, I'm sure, and find um, the Select Committee on Sea Level Rise in the California Economy to find out where these hearings are going to be held. But um, the legislature is is um, paying attention now. And some local officials know about this, but they say we don't have any money or tools to deal with it. So that's where you go to things like the Ocean Protection Council and Coastal Conservancy Grant Program, where 
um, these grants are actually being extended to um, cities and counties along the coast to update their general plans and to build in the, you know, the best readily available science to their planning. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Um, you didn't address at all the the uh, corporate uh, factors in, in in the climate change, resistance by oil companies to to uh, thwart the use of fossil fuels, and how is the effectiveness of the carbon credits going? I'd like to tackle that. I didn't really catch for, for, completely the question. Uh, fossil fuel companies opposing action on climate change. Oh, you should see my emails. Dear Dr. Fagan, I'm very distressed to see in your book that you say that climate change is being caused by humans. I enclose here with a paper which I wrote recently, and you look at it. I am grateful to the Exxon Corporation for sponsoring this paper. I get a lot of this. Almost invariably, the people who write to me about this, who oppose this, have agendas. I thought the energy companies were a little more discreet about uh, that these days. The ones who have um, been reading to me have got more discreet, but they weren't some years ago. Right. In fact, uh, uh, Steve Cole, who wrote a book, uh, Private Empire, about ExxonMobil, talks about how they fund research with the specific purpose of getting it into the peer-reviewed literature stream for the purpose of litigation that they anticipate years down the road. So they're quite... Uh, savvy and long-term thinking about funding research that will be be beneficial. Compared with Meg, I am but a child in all this. I am an archaeologist. (laughs) I look back. You'll be studying the seawalls that we... Your your successors will be studying the seawalls that we build in in future generations. Uh, Let's have our next question. That's uh, totally appropriate. My question is to Meg Caldwell, uh, and it has to do with these adaptive measures. I happen to be a coastal dweller, very perilously behind a seawall. How do you justify what you talked about, the coastal retreat and the right to uh, universal access to the California beaches with the private property rights that that my wife and I have Mm -hmm. to preserve our home? Uh, These are, I mean, we're hearing historically uh, from uh, the professor, the you know, about the people want to have a sense of home and place. Well, that is our home and place. Mm -hmm. So, what is the Coastal Commission and the state of California doing to preserve our constitutional right to, to live and raise our family on the coast? Meg Caldwell? So I'll try to parse this a little bit um, and build up. The, the first thing is that no matter what the Coastal Commission does or what private property owners do, sometimes it's not enough in the face of um, these really damaging storms. So we've seen um, areas like Pacifica where buildings, um, despite the fact that they had revetments at the bottom of the bluff, um, these buildings fall over the cliff. Um, What's a revetment? Uh, a, a pile of rocks, okay, uh, if that you I can will. Uh, yes, uh, and usually they're really big rocks. So yeah. they're coming from big, you know, they're big quarry rocks that are piled up along the coastline. Um, the second thing is that um, there is a common law doctrine that is alive and well in California and enshrined in both the Coastal Act and in our Constitution called the Public Trust Doctrine. And what that, um, what that doctrine says is that the state is a trustee of our coastal and marine resources 
and um, is responsible for guaranteeing the right of the public to access the shoreline for fishing and navigation uh, and swimming, recreation, um, and also to protect, in California, we have a very robust public trust doctrine, to protect ecological function. Um, so that common law doctrine um, exists with or without the Coastal Act. With the Coastal Act, we have a state statute that was written and adopted in 1976 um, when folks didn't know what we know now about uh, what climate change would bring to the California coast. And um, there we have a couple of provisions that are, are relevant to your question. One is uh, a provision in the Coastal Act that says the Coastal Commission is not allowed um, to affect a taking of private property. To It doesn't have the power of eminent domain um, to take property and then pay you for it. Um, so it needs to make its decisions in a manner where it avoids such a situation. Um, we also have a, a condition, a, a provision in the Coastal Act that says um, that for existing structures, there is a qualified right um, to armor, um, to protect your structure. Um, it's qualified by the fact that it, your structure needs to be in danger of erosion um, and that you need to, the, the any kind of hardening needs to be um, um, basically uh, an, an alternative to other more detrimental environmental alternatives. So it needs to be the least environmentally detrimental alternative for you to be able to pursue that. Um, and this is this provision that talks about protecting existing structures. So back when the Coastal Act was written, um, clearly we were thinking, we were definitely grandfathering existing structures that were along the coast. Um, but as that provision has been interpreted over time, the commission has looked at, say, your proposal for a seawall and said, well, do you have a structure existing along the coast at the time that you filed that application? And your answer would be yes. And we would say, oh, it's an existing structure. So back in the 1980s, um, the, the Coastal Commission looked at another provision, well, looked at many, I know, but at least one other provision in the Coastal Act, which says that it, it does not have the liberty to approve development, new development along the coast that will, at some point in the future, require coastal armoring. Um, so now the commission um, basically includes conditions of approval that says you have a no future seawall condition attached to your approval, um, your permit. And um, so regardless of your own particular circumstances, we're at a situation where the commission has really tried to um, do honor to um, the balance of the Coastal Act. Uh, which says we do not want a hardened um, California shoreline and we need to build responsibly in a way that won't ultimately require um, a hardening of our shoreline, um, but also uh, needs to take into account provisions that talk about not affecting a taking. So one of the the, the um, elements of any kind of legal analysis of a coastal property owner's situation is to say, what is the impact and the effect of the public trust doctrine um, in this case? And um, if you are going to build uh, a seawall on pub- public trust lands, the wet sand, for example, 
um, perhaps you should pay rent back to the public. Um, so I think there are a variety of options that the commission has and will continue to consider over time um, and uh, within the parameters that um, it must live. And um, these are never easy, um, but uh, they make good fodder for lawyers. I'll just mention uh, one other book. We had an author here named John Englander recently. He wrote a book called High Tide on Main Street. Uh, it's centered really on Florida, but it also looks at sea level rise. And a lot of people came up to him during the writing of that book and said, recognize sea level rise. These are people who own oceanfront condos in Miami and said, if I sell in 10 years, will I be okay? People know that coastal property markets will at some point be hit by these. The value of coastal property may be changed, and people just don't know, unsure. It's all about the time frame. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Could you talk about the impact of desalinization? There's a lot already going on in the Middle East, and what is the overall impact? Desalination. Desalination. What about it? What we think, what you think about it. Uh, I think it's really more Megs than mine, but it costs fossil fuel to make it. And then you have the issue of transporting it. It makes sense maybe in a place like Abu Dhabi. Have you been to Abu Dhabi? You have? Dubai, yeah. Or Dubai? She's been to Dubai. I have no desire to go back. The water tasted terrible. But they have unlimited fossil fuel, but the ecological consequences are considerable. I'm not violently enthusiastic about it, but it is one of our choices. San Diego's going forward with an expensive desalination project. It's under consideration in Monterey. It's expensive, energy intensive, Mm -hmm. Caldwell. Yeah, and there are also environmental impacts that need to be um, considered um, quite seriously. So whether you're dealing with uh, wells that are in the beach area, the sand area, um, and don't risk um, impacts like impingement and entrainment. So impingement is when uh, in species... Individual organisms smash up against the screens of the intake pipe um, and uh, die as a result. Or entrainment where larvae and other organisms, I mean, the ocean is a habitat. I think that's really important to, uh, to understand. Um, our ocean and coastal systems are ecosystems. There are living organisms. There's the base of the food web there, um, the, the baby rockfish. Um, who are uh, who develop in our estuaries um, and later go out um, off the continental shelf and become important parts of our, our commercial fisheries, they are part of this whole ecosystem. So entrainment can actually suck those critters in in their baby stages, their larval stages, and results in complete mortality. Um, so these are some... Plus, there's the issue of what to do with the byproduct of desalination, which is the brine. And um, we are learning more and more about how brine behaves um, when it's discharged into our coastal system. And um, from that, we've, we've learned that it doesn't just dissolve um, and, and disperse evenly, um, that it can, um, depending on the the Local conditions, it can coat the benthic area where you may have other critters who are adversely affected. 
So these are all some of the other considerations on top of the carbon footprint of desalination that needs to be considered. And then there's the terrestrial side. There's um, There are questions about the degree to which desalination may be growth-inducing in areas that simply, you know, don't have the... Um, uh, the water resources or other resources to support coastal development. So we're kind of changing our, our dynamics here as we consider desalination. And um, I don't purport to have the answer, but I do know that we have to be honest with ourselves about um, what the potential impacts are and what the costs of desal are as compared to things like water conservation um, and uh, other efficiencies that we can gain in our water supply system. So I would just commit everybody to looking at the Pacific Institute's uh, reports on desalination because they're quite good and they do a really good job of covering many of these issues. If you're just joining us, Meg Caldwell is a professor of law at Stanford University. Uh, let's have our next question. Uh, my question is, are we currently, through our taxes and disaster funds, paying for people to relocate from low-lying areas, and um, if if we want people to leave these areas, how are we going to get them to do it? Um, Santa Barbara, if you walk along the beach, you see uh, houses up on the cliff with half of their deck off the cliff, um, and they are evidently in uh, lawsuits with the cities and, and counties they live in, uh, perpetually, they're still there, and their deck hasn't fallen yet, but it will. We want to live in paradise, but not pay the price of paradise. Who'd like to take a let, tackle that? Brian Fager or Meg Caldwell? We we Meg do Caldwell. currently. Uh, there is a FEMA grant program, um, Federal Emerg- Emergency Management Administration uh, or agency. Um, that for which the funds have been used to relocate uh, structures and households, businesses off and away from high hazard coastal areas. So there is um, some money um, that for which we all um, are are uh, contributing that is being used for what many of us call managed retreat. Um, there are also some really cool um, land use techniques that can be used, and I'm reminded of Humboldt County, where they're in the pathway of Humboldt Bay, and we know with sea level rise, Humboldt Bay will should continue to migrate landward. Um, and so one subdivision that came up for the Coastal Commission actually required the, the, the conditions of approval required that for every... Um, shoreline lot, that there be a complementary lot, a sister lot, if you will, and when um, a certain level of sea level uh, was achieved, that the structure, which was built to be, to be moved, um, it was uh, basically, constri- they needed to be constructed in a way that they could be moved, um, that those structures would be moved back to the sister lot. So there, you know, that for new development, that kind of thing um, can work. Um, and for existing development, um, we look to other techniques like um, compensating folks for moving off the, the shoreline. Just a few minutes left. Let's try to get one or two more questions in. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Maureen Forney. I'm a public school teacher in San Leandro, California. I'm 
was particularly attentive when you mentioned an informed citizenry because my students look nothing like the audience here today. And I knew who our future informed citizenry is supposed to be. They're in my classroom and all around me. So my question is in regards to school standard reform and in the STEM area, science, technology, engineering, and math, and new common core standards are being written around these. There is little, if any, attention paid in the STEM standards, science, technology, energy, I'm sorry, engineering, and math, that refer to any of these issues that we, as an informed citizenry here, know are incredibly important. What is being done, what can be done, what will be done to take the considerable knowledge that you have and others have to offer to influence standards to be written for our students' education so we do have an informed citizenry that you've obviously made um, clear is important to our future. Brian. Brian Fagan, there have been some efforts to get this into the state. Say again? I'm sorry? Th- th- uh, your, your response on, on the education standards, please. Forgive me, I'm slightly deaf, so I have trouble hearing the questions. So if I haven't got this right, tell me. To my mind, and a lot of what Meg is saying to me is a revelation to me. I mean, a lot of it's wonderful stuff. I think an awful lot of this, and I'm a, thank God, a former professor, not a current one. I think there has to be a very radical, radical think about what undergraduates are taught. And I think a great deal of what Meg is talking about should be required at the lower division level, instead of some of the stuff that's taught now, I think we really need to take a drastic look at undergraduate education in the context of adapting to the future. As far as communicating with the public is concerned, one of the big problems now is that a great deal of publishing is concerned with entertainment. And I as an author, like serious non-fiction, which hopefully is readable. The sex scene is on page 80, but the people we really want to meet maybe don't read it. And we have an issue there. So really, I can't give you a very good answer. Meg Caldwell, also an educator. Yes, let me add a little bit of dimension to this, and that is just in my capacity. I serve on the board of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and the aquarium is a partner organization within the Center for Ocean Solutions. So I'm aware of the incredible work that institutions like the aquarium have played in um, the STEM standards and in reaching out to uh, local school districts, in the case of the aquarium, to Watsonville area in particular, and working with them on bringing ocean literacy directly into the classroom and bringing students and, of course, all public school students and uh, come to the aquarium for free. Um, so there's a major effort there. I do know that the aquarium uh, education uh, program staff members have been involved in um, the, the STEM standards and have done their level best uh, to get ocean literacy into those standards. But, you know, I, I admit that I'm sure it's a, we're a long way off. Yes, there's a little bit of progress there. We, uh, we are out of time. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Brian Fagan, author of The Attacking Ocean, The Past, Present, and Future of Rising Sea Levels, and Meg Caldwell, a senior lecturer at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming to Climate One today. Podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. Thanks for coming.